0: Hello, world. This is the first episode of our new podcast on machine learning.
1: The point of this show is, first and foremost, to explain new interesting things that we're learning about in the world of machine learning and and talk about them in relatively accessible terms, even if your background uh, isn't specifically in machine learning. So rather than to be instructional and to teach machine learning from scratch, our goals are to talk about things we read about things that we are curious about and decided to research, and things that people we know or have met are working on. So I guess now we can introduce ourselves. Um, I'm, a, I'm My name is Brendan. I'm a student in Northern Ontario and a, I guess, hobbyist machine learning developer. I'm currently working with the Dark Matter Observatory Snow Lab on deep learning for particle identification, and I've worked on some previous projects related to uh, machine learning and self-driving cars. I'm a student
0: in California, near the Bay Area, working on robotics research, especially the applications of deep learning and semantic segmentation to robots. And I've previously interned on the embedded team at NVIDIA.
1: So we're not going to assume a super great amount of knowledge about machine learning. So our intention here is to start with an episode to kind of survey the field at large and talk about what it is in basic terms why we want to use it, some example applications, and then in future episodes, we'll talk more in depth about new things that are happening in specific applications. So Anish, why don't you go ahead and start about why we want to use machine learning?
0: So we want to use machine learning because conventional programming is hard. Conventional approaches to computer vision, audio processing, etc., usually end up being very brittle.
1: So an example of this would be Distinguishing between cats and dogs, if you imagine trying to write a an like a a conventional vision system to detect ears, eyes, the nose, the tail, uh, what have you and and this is quite a difficult thing to do and usually does not work very well using things like line detections.
0: Machine learning is quite often the better solution to this. Because with machine learning, you can take advantage of human intuition to create a training set and then use that to train a neural network, which can automatically learn these features like eyes, ears, colors, facial shape, etc., by processing the entire image and segmenting chunks of the image, which, can, which contain these various features. And by combining these features, it can distinguish what's in the image. It could be a cat, a dog, a human, et cetera.
1: Perfect. So, so now let's talk a little bit about what machine learning is in basic terms. So Wikipedia says that machine learning is the scientific study of algorithms and statistical models that computer systems use to effectively pour, perform a specific task without using explicit instructions, relying on patterns and inference instead. So this encompasses a huge field of possible systems, um, the simplest being simple uh, simply fitting a line of best fit to a set of data, which is is a very simple way to make predictions on sets of data that are arranged in a line or some convenient curve like that. And there are other simpler machine learning methods, like uh, support vector machines, which you may have heard of, k-means clustering, which are used to find clusters in data that contains no labels, and uh, related things like this. And...
0: The recently what's become the most common form of machine learning is neural networks, which I think most listeners will be most familiar with. And neural networks include, there's many types of them, including things like convolutional neural networks, which are often used on image data, Uh, recurrent neural networks, which are often used on text and sequential data, generative models, which can be used for things like generating anime faces and detecting document forgeries, as well as things like reinforcement learning, which are often referred to as deep Q networks, which can create game-playing AIs, such as that used by Google for their Pong-playing AI that they created last year.
1: So basically, yeah, what we're trying to say here is that machine learning has, takes An essentially infinite number of different forms that can be applied to various applications and what they all have in common is that they learn from data rather than being programmed manually. So now we'll give you a bit of an introduction into how machine learning actually works.
0: So from a mathematical point of view, your neural network, or any machine learning model for that matter, is essentially a function, just say f of x, where x, the input to the function, is any data. It could be an image, a piece of text, some numerical data, and f, which is your function, is your neural network. And then the output of f of x is whatever your neural network is outputting. For example, for object classification, The X would be an image, say an image of a cat or a dog or a human, and the output would be the classification of what that image contains. And the whole process of machine learning is determining what that function F of X will be that will take an input X and output your desired classification. So Brendan, why don't you talk about
1: how this F of X is found? So as you can imagine, finding this f of x is a pretty non-trivial process because it is, I mean, you can see that because it is hard for a human to write a classifier using conventional line detections. So the way that this is done automatically is using what's known as a loss function. And a loss function, or, or scoring function, or cost function, it goes by many names, is a function that tells you how well you're currently doing. So... You can see this in biology, you know, the loss function uh, can be equated to reward sensors and it'll go up when you eat food or when you uh, discover something new or when you make money. And this loss function, rather it'll go down when any of these things happen and it goes up when something bad happens. So your goal is to minimize this loss function. This can be done in many different ways. And in neural networks, the most common is through backpropagation. And the way that this is essentially done is that you make the assumption that the loss function is differentiable, which means that its slope at any given point uh, within the possible set of parameters of the neural network is well-defined. And what we can do is take the parameters of the neural network, also known as weights, which are similar to weights within neurons in biological brains. The idea is that you will find the adjustments to the weights using the chain rule in calculus that can be used to reduce the loss function from whatever value it is currently at. And when, when this is done over and over and over, that when this process is repeated, gradually the weights of the network will approach a position that minimizes the loss function. And at that point, you will have a well-optimized cat or dog classifier or whatever it is that you're trying to create. So, in order to run through this process,
0: you need to feed the neural network a lot of data. Generally, your data set is split into three, three separate data sets, a training set, a validation set, and a test set. The reason for having separate validation and test set is to prevent a phenomenon known as overfitting. Overfitting is when the neural network is not actually learning the features you want it to learn, which is the cat, the dog, or human. It's actually learning specifically the images that it's being trained on. For example, if all of your cat images had certain pixels in certain locations, say if it looked at the very central pixel of the image and memorized what pixel it was for a cat and what pixel it was for all of your dog images and learned just that, the neural network would still successfully classify all of its training data, but be unable to classify any new images since it's only memorizing a single feature that's not unique to the cat or the dog, but only to the training images. This is why we use a test and validation data set. By using a validation data set to test the neural network after training, you can distinguish whether the neural network has actually learned the features that you want it to learn, or if it's just overfitted and learned about your training set and only memorized that. Finally, the test data set is used once the neural network has been completely developed for a final rating of its performance
1: for comparison against other neural networks. Right, so I'm just going to add a little bit to that and say that uh, an additional reason that test sets are often used is when you are testing many different formats of neural networks in a row or different network structures. And sometimes you can actually get uh, what's called a validation set overfitting, where it will uh, the, there will be an unexpected statistical bias due to the fact that you're testing uh, many different kinds. And essentially, you will learn the network structure to perform the best on that specific validation set. So the, the entire goal of using these different sets is to make sure that your neural network is actually learning rather than memorizing. Now, I'll just talk a little bit about the categories of applications that you will use neural networks for. So the first most common one uh, in, in many introductions to neural networks is classification. And this will be cat or dog, uh, road line or not road line in a self-driving car, essentially anything or for for another instance figure out which object this is if it's a cat or a dog or an apple or a banana or a keyboard or a telephone so this is called classification now regression on the other hand is something where you're trying to output a value that is not it does not fit into a set of specific categories so an example would be you're trying uh, you have some data from an assembly line and you're trying to determine the the expected quality of this part or the based on a set of parameters that you have so rather than fitting into a specific category it will it will um, output a, a floating point number or a real number describing some kind of gradual property of the data. So now what we'll do a little bit is talk about some specific applications of machine learning to make this seem perhaps a little bit more concrete. An example, uh, one that is most common in the media in particular right now, is self-driving cars, which are being used by many companies like Google, NVIDIA, and numerous others, Tesla, for instance. Now, there are a number of challenges with self-driving cars including detection of road lines and obstacles, which are then used to determine how to actually steer the vehicle. So there's a few different ways to do this. Uh, And conventionally, like in the past, you know, think in the 1990s, people were still building self-driving cars, and they were doing this based on defining an exact precise formula that allows us to detect these road lines. So if this color is sufficiently yellow, then we consider it a road line. But in practice, this tends to be pretty sensitive to things like glare from the sun, other cars, and different road conditions.
0: So this is why we use neural networks instead. Because the neural network can not only learn the specific features, but it can also learn which features to ignore, things that Brendan mentioned like the glare, other cars, and variations in color amongst other issues, which would trip up a normal algorithm because it would think that these features are part of what it's detecting. The neural network can learn to ignore simply by training it that the addition or removal of these features has no difference on the actual output. So so one way that this is frequently done is say you want to teach the neural network to to ignore shadows so instead of having many photos some with shadows some without shadows you can take the same photos where say it's detecting the lane lines and artificially add shadows on top of the photo and then train the neural network with both the photo with and without the shadow that at the output the location of the lane line would remain the same. This would allow the neural network to eventually learn to ignore shadows since with or without them, your output is exactly the same. And one way we develop these neural networks for any sort of image detection or classification or regression task is using convolutional neural networks. Convolutional networks slide up something of a sliding window, but trained, where essentially it looks at small chunks of the image in order to find features in each part of the image. Since say, if we're detecting a cat, having that cat anywhere in the image is still the same. So instead of having to detect at every location the image, the same detection is run across the image and wherever the features are found, the neural network can know to ignore the position and only consider the features and their relative positions to each other, which is the main advantage of convolutional neural networks. And one major example of this, in keeping with the self-driving car example, is end-to-end self-driving car control. This is essentially a regression model where given a single image from a front-facing camera on the car, the neural network learns to steer the car. So this is done by first creating a training data set, which is done by having a human control the car and having a camera which continuously takes images and corresponds them with the steering angle, whether the human is steering towards the left or the right or going straight, and then feeding all of this data into a convolutional neural network whose input is just an image and whose output is a single number which corresponds to the steering angle. And as described earlier, techniques like adding shadows and changing the colors are frequently used so that the neural network will not only work in the conditions it was trained in, but also in other conditions, such as distinguishing between the day and the night, or when it's brighter or when there's shadows or when there's other cars in the way by artificially adding these features into the images. And once this is completed, you have a neural network that can be put onto a car and run in real time, taking just a single camera image and converting it into a steering angle. And NVIDIA was uh, previously able to successfully control a real car with this.
1: Now steering is not, or rather detecting the road is not the only challenge involved in self-driving cars, as there there are many others, including detection of other vehicles and detection of stop signs, which is something that end-to-end neural networks are not really very well capable of learning unless you have an absolute mountain of data. So rather than doing this, we will use object detection networks, and there are a few different common ways to do this. One of the the ones that has gotten more attention recently is called YOLO, you only look once. And this is a network architecture that uses convolutional neural networks to do object detection in one shot. And the idea is that your input is an image, and your output is, rather than a classification, it is essentially multiple different regression parameters, which define bounding boxes in the image. So you may have an output that says that starting at uh, x and y position 55, 67, and ending at 324, 526, you have a dog. And then, and then there will be multiple such bounding boxes that uh, that come out of the network. And this, this allows things like stop signs and road signs to actually be detected. And then you can then use another machine learning method to read the text on the sign or to determine which direction a sign is telling you to go. Another method for this that's sometimes used is called sliding windows. And these have fallen out of favor... They've fallen out of favor a little bit in recent years, but are still sometimes used. And the principle is that you will essentially create a classification neural network, a very simple one, say take this block of the image and tell me whether there's a stop sign in it, and then run this in every possible position over the image. And you can think of this as actually being an analog to the convolution process within a CNN itself. And essentially the output is a map that tells you... um, where the high values, the bright pixels, correspond to the position of stop signs, and the dim pixels correspond to the positions where there are probably not stop signs.
0: Yes, so as you can see, object detection is a very important part of self-driving cars, but sometimes you don't just want the locations of the object, but you want the exact boundaries of the object, or sometimes it's not even a single object, You want a broader scale, a broader scheme of things, say the entire road, which you can't really consider to be a single object, but it's actually a region in the image. So, how this is done is by using methods known as semantic segmentation, or more generally, just types of segmentation. An example of this that I've been working on recently is say you're trying to build a robot that can navigate in an indoor environment, and you want this to be able to avoid obstacles. So the conventional way to do this is either by using something like a LIDAR, which has many limitations and it's expensive because it can only detect objects in front of it, and, but it can detect anything regardless of what kind of object it is, unless it's something of, unless it's something like a staircase or a glass window, which the LIDAR cannot see since it only looks straight forward. Another way that's recently been used on a lot of robots is using object detection, where it's trained to detect humans, uh, chairs, tables, walls, etc. But this can only detect discrete objects. So if a new obstacle were to come into play that the neural network had not been trained for, it would be unable to detect it and simply think it was just part of the floor. So the solution that's been used that I've come up with is using a segmentation neural network where essentially the network is trained to detect the floor around it, where it instead of detecting a single object, it essentially segments this region by labeling every single pixel in the image where any areas that are part of the floor are labeled in the output of the neural network as free space. So the output of the neural network will just be another image, which has two diff- only two colors, either one, which is free space, or the other, which is obstacles. So instead of having to distinguish discrete obstacles, it distinguishes regions that are free space and regions that are not.
1: Okay, Anish, so I'm going to ask you a few questions about this project that you were talking about. So uh, about how semantic segmentation works and how you're applying it uh, so that we can hopefully provide a bit more context for listeners. So would you be able to explain to me, in basic terms, how does semantic segmentation work? Like, what, how is the network structured? How do you get from a photograph of the room to a map that tells you what object is what?
0: So essentially, the goal of semantic segmentation is that you're taking a single image, which is usually a camera image, plus in some cases, some auxiliary inputs, and your output is going to be another image with the same dimensions as your original camera image, but with the different classes in the image overlaid. In this case, the two classes that there are are obstacles and free space, such that if you overlaid the output image on top of the input image, the regions of the input image which correspond to free space would be marked as such on the output image, and the regions on the input image which are obstacles would be marked as such on the output image as obstacles.
1: So how do you... How how is the uh, how is the network structured? So do do you go? I mean, I, as I'm aware, most convolutional neural networks start with a large image and gradually downscale the image until you get down to a single neuron, which will be your classification. How does how does this differ for semantic segmentation?
0: So semantic segmentation is more like a pyramid or like a double pyramid like if you consider a regular convolutional neural network to be a pyramid where it starts with a large image and slowly decreases its spatial dimension or the width and the height until it reaches the size of a single neuron or a few neurons semantic segmentation is like two of these one where it first takes the image and runs it through convolutions that make it smaller although not down to a single neuron but it makes the spatial dimensions of the image smaller while capturing data about what's actually in the image at each region in the image. This is where the fact that convolutions slide over the image helps because it can capture each part of the image separately and it does not get hung up on things like whether a certain class is near the bottom of the image or near the top. It treats the whole image the same way. And then there's the inverted part of the pyramid where it grows the image based on the data that it has about the features of the image. It grows it back to a full size image, which in this case is done through a transpose convolution, also known as an inverted convolution.
1: Interesting. So what you're doing here sounds a lot like compressing the image data and then decompressing it into um, into a set of regions that contain objects?
0: Uh, Yes, pretty much. And what this allows is there's two benefits of it. One is that the part of the neural network that's compressing the image can actually be pre-trained on a completely separate data set. In this case, I pre trained the first part of the neural network on ImageNet, which is just a standard run-of-the-mill object classification data set. And this allows the neural network to be trained on a large data set to begin with. And then I only need a very small amount of semantic segmentation specific data data in order to train the network.
1: That's interesting. So what you're doing is essentially pre-training the line and corner detections um and, and whatever simple features you have. And then you are you are repurposing this initial data abstraction to uh to segmenting a room. Would that be an accurate way of looking at it?
0: Yeah, effectively, that's how it's done. And this, the main purpose of this is because getting a classification data set is very easy, while manually labeling a data set for segmentation is much more difficult in terms of human labor, because the labeling process is much slower.
1: Cool. Okay, so what categories are you actually classifying the room into? Is it a binary classification? So in this case,
0: yes, it's a binary classification. I found that I tried other methods, which having different parts of the room or different types of flooring as different classes, but uh, unless the use case actually necessitated these different classes, the overall goal of detecting obstacles, it didn't help at all.
1: Interesting, okay. So once you have this map of what is free space that you can drive on and what are obstacles or drop-offs or staircases, what do you actually do with this? How do you take this map and then use it to um, to navigate? Because I know that when you have a camera, it has a perspective view, which is very different from a top-down view that you would use to plan your path.
0: Yes. So this is where it gets interesting because given the camera image, it... Uh, as you said, it's not a top-down view, so it actually needs to be projected in such a way that you can get a 3D point cloud out of it. And the purpose of getting a 3D point cloud is that it's a coordinates relative to the robot, which can actually be fed into a navigation stack algorithm. So the way I do this is first by taking the free space map which is, will just be an image with the regions that the robot can drive in versus the regions it cannot drive in, which is the output of the network, and finding the points on the boundary between the obstacles and the drivable space. So these points are the regions where the floor ends and where an obstacle begins. And by finding these points, I can then assume that those points are at the ground level since they're an edge between the floor and an obstacle. And because they're at the ground level, I can assume that the height of them relative to the camera is fixed, since the floor will usually be either flat or slope, but rarely curved. So then by doing a simple ray projection using from the camera outward at each of these points, I can find the region where the ray from the camera intersects the ground level, and find the 3D coordinates of this point. And uh, I'll link my paper in the description, which has a more visual example of this, of how it uses the camera model to project the ray.
1: Awesome, so then then from there, once you have these points, you will you will find a path that remains within these, these boundaries, I suppose.
0: Uh, yes, so once the point cloud is obtained, I can use any conventional pathfinding algorithm whether I feed it into something like robot operating systems navigation stack or use my own custom navigation stack, once the points are there, the rest is simple.
1: Okay uh, thank you that's uh, that's a really good explanation. So I've just got one last question that relates to some previous work I've done for classifying different parts of an image and I found that very frequently the the output does not easily map to a simple block that's an obstacle and then another block that is a uh, free space. Often you end up with little random bright pixels and dark pixels throughout the image that represent nothing more than small erratic predictions of features where there are none because of small variations in the image or slight patterns that it thinks are features but in reality are really nothing. So have you had any experiences like this with semantic segmentation? Have you had predictions that that do not work out nicely? And if so, how have you resolved them?
0: Uh, so, yes, I have had some of this problem before. So part of this I resolved just by improving the training process and improving the neural network architecture, such as I decided to add an auxiliary input to the neural network where before, start processing the image. I would manually do some edge detection on the image, which I found slightly improved the neural network both in terms of accuracy and training time, because it could use these edge detected images, uh, and it since these edges usually corresponded to the edges of obstacles and free space. These explicitly edge detected images would help the neural network. Uh, refine its predictions at the edges of obstacles. And secondly, uh, some of it I compensated for during the actual inference time, where instead of taking just a single image and using that, I can do things like averaging multiple images or finding points that are mutually inclusive and mutually exclusive between two images, where, say, if one small region in front of the robot was detected as an obstacle once, but in the several frames after that, which are just a small fraction of a second apart, if there's no obstacle there, the algorithm can know that that was actually not an obstacle and it was just some noise in the neural network. So I found that after testing it and refining it, it wasn't a huge problem in the actual robot navigation.
1: Interesting. So. When you, if you don't mind me asking, when you did the edge detection on the image, did you input that into the network in addition to the regular RGB raw image or as a replacement?
0: Uh, I inputted it in addition so, so it can use the RGB image to detect colors and features. But actually near the very end of the neural network, in the part where it's done the processing on the, uh, the color image and scaled it up again, In the middle of that scaling up or that upsampling process, it injects the edge detected image just for very small refinements at the pixel level of the edges of the obstacles.
1: Okay, thank you. That was a great explanation. All right, I guess we should, uh, I guess we'll wrap up our first episode here. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. And we uh, we are planning to do uh, future episodes as soon as we have time
0: and you can feel free to contact us if you have any questions or any interests, or would like to be on the podcast.
1: We'll put our emails and contact information in the show notes.